uh, Genesis chapter 17, we are going to pick up right where we left off, right in the middle of a story that we left off with last week. As I told you last week, we spent the whole morning building towards a point. I gave you the main point at the end of the sermon and said, hey, I'm sorry, we we turned into some application, but I said, hey, you're going to have to come back next week or listen online to hear the the second half. And and so that's where we're picking up. Uh, Just to, to give a review, just a very quick review so that those that haven't heard it yet or those that uh, need reminding, you'll have these things in front of you. The point that we built to last week as we worked from Genesis 12 through 15 was we came to this point. God has bound himself in covenant with Abraham that he will fulfill all that he has promised to accomplish for Abraham and through Abraham and takes the curse upon himself if he doesn't. God had called Abraham when Abraham was 75 years old. He was Abram at that time. Now, just I'm just going to say it. I didn't say it last week. I'm calling him Abraham all the time because that's who he's going to be, be, be named as in chapter 17. Uh, for simplicity's sake, I was trying to go back and forth between those two names last week, and I messed it up so many times. I was like, uh, just know, I'm talk- if I say Abram, I mean Abraham. If I say Abraham, I mean Abraham. Okay, so, so we're together in that. Um, but, but God had called Abra- Abraham uh, when he was 75 years old, called him out of, his, out of his nation, out of his land, out of his family's house, all these things that he was to separate from himself from all of it and come and follow God, go to a land that God would show him. And he did. God made promises to him. And those promises we saw reiterated throughout 12 through 15. He, God promised him relationship. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my person, my people. He promised him blessing, abundance, both in fear, physical and spiritual ways, offspring, children, lots of them. And a di- couple of different times he says, hey, you're going to have children as, as much as the dust of the earth. You're going to have children as many as the stars in the sky. That's a lot of kids, right? Like there's a lot of offspring accounted for there. And then the promise of a land, a place to live. He says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to be a blessing to you. You're going to be a blessing to others through you. All peoples are going to be blessed. Your children are going to have a place to live, this nation that I'm going to make. All of these promises were given to Abraham early on. And then as time goes and he walks with God, God gives him a little bit more. You know, there's that initial introduction, this is what I'm going to do. And then as time goes, the the promises remain the same, but they become more explicit. And we begin to see that that Abram is expecting a son. I'm going to have a son, my own son. And and, and that son is going to have sons and daughters, and and they're going to have a land to live in. And and Abram is, okay, I, I believe you. He trusted him, it says. God counted it to him as righteousness, but, but how can I know? How can I be certain that you're going to do these things? And God binds himself in covenant to Abraham. He makes himself responsible to fulfill all that he's promised him. He binds himself in covenant to Abraham that he will fulfill all he has promised to accomplish for Abraham and through Abraham, and then he, in that covenant, he takes the curse upon himself. So he has Abraham gather a bull, a, a, a lamb, and a, and a ram, and he has him cut them in half and lay them across from one another. And he has these birds, and he lays them off opposite one another, and there's a path, a, a, a gauntlet, if you will. <clears throat> and typically, the, the covenant partners would walk through that together, and they would say, we're going to live up to this covenant. We're going to fulfill the covenant responsibilities together. But God says, Abraham, I'm doing this on my own. 
He puts Abraham to sleep, and in the form of a smoking pot and a, and a burning torch, he passes through, taking and saying, I'm going to fulfill this covenant. And if I don't fulfill the covenant, or even if my covenant partner doesn't live up to the covenant, I'm taking that upon myself. I'm guaranteeing it will occur. So, Abraham enters into covenant with God, is blessed to be in covenant with God. And God's answer to him is, to the question, how can I know, is my covenant. My promise is based upon who I am. It's on my nature. It's conditioned upon who I have shown myself to be. I will do this. All that's left for Abraham is to walk in faith. To walk with God in faith. Just to continue to trust Him. But as we're going to see today, though there was no condition put on Abraham to guarantee the fulfillment of the promises, his faith would come with serious, strong, real responsibility. So that's what we're going to read, Genesis 17. And we're going to read the whole thing. I'm going to take some moments just to stop, just to make sure that we're staying together, just to make a couple of points, nothing real big, just to, so that as we read this long passage together, uh, we can stay in tune with it. Um, so I want to pray now before I read, and then we'll, we'll jump in. So Father, this is your word. It's powerful. We know that you, you have recorded it, and, and every ounce of it we know is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting us. And we know that it's good and able to, to prepare us for every good work, and that all Scripture, even this passage, is useful in your hands. And so I pray that your Spirit would meet us here, that our hearts would be tuned to it, that your Spirit would confront us, that would do the work of uh, uh, the, the necessary work revealing where our flesh would run uh, in rebellion and revealing where the Spirit has done a work that's led us into repentance so that we can celebrate and so that we can continue living and walking in faith. I pray that you'd be with us today. It's these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis 17, beginning in verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and, my, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called, or you sh your name shall be Abraham. Thank you, Lord, for letting us, get, getting us to that point. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my offspring or I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So here we are. We saw the, in, in the first week, we saw all the faith and all the, the requirements that God was taking upon himself, the conditioning, the whole covenant, guaranteeing the whole covenant upon himself. And, and all Abraham had to do was walk in faith. But here we fast forward 13 more years and we see um, God entering into that covenant and 
continuing to progressively reveal more of that covenant and saying, look, this is what faith is going to look like for you. I'm going to do this work, but I'm requiring something of you. And so God says, this is what I'm going to do. When we pick it up in verse 9, we're going to see what God says, Abraham, you're going to do. And God said to Abraham, as for you, so the, so the first portion of this is, is as for God, he's going to do this work. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is brought with you, bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So my, so my covenant shall be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people He has broken my covenant. So you see, God has guaranteed fulfillment of his promises. God has said, I am going to do this work. But you must must obey me. You must walk in faith, in faithful obedience. You must do these things. And here's what I'm requiring of you. And anyone who doesn't, they cut themselves off. Faith and obedience are requirements of God's covenant blessings. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, so we see what God's going to do. We see what God's requiring of Abraham. And as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah. Now, I think that probably that would have been Sarah and Sarah. You shall, shall be her name. Both of the names mean princess. One probably looks back and one looks forward to the covenant people that she will uh, parent or or bless. I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And you see the mirroring of of what God is going to do through Abraham. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah who is 99 years old bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh that Ishmael might live before you. God said no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him, everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father a great na- he, will fa- he shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. You see the the joining together, the purposeful, intentional work that God was going to do. It wasn't just through Abraham. He had a he had a plan that Abraham and Sarah together would be the would, would be the parent of this child of promise. And she's old. She's she's beyond years of menstruating. Like not only had she never borne him a child. But how in the world could she bear one to him now? How could a man who's 99 years old, who Paul would later call nearly dead, as good as dead in Romans 9, I think around verse 14, and and the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11, uh, around verse 8, I think is where it is, speaks of Abraham as just nearly dead. He's as good as dead. 
How is a, a person like this going to father a child, be a parent to a child? And how is a woman who's so old? Now, I don't know if, that's, he, if he says that to Sarah, she's probably a little bit bothered by that. How is a lady like you, look at you, lady. I mean, how are you going to? I don't know that that's how it went, but he's talking with the Lord. He's like, how can this be? Consider my son Ishmael. No. I have a plan. I have a purpose. I'm doing a work. When he had finished picking up verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abram, Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, brought bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. I was a baby, and I don't remember it. I've heard stories. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of the house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Abraham's is a story of faith and patience. From, from the time of God's first call on him, 24 years have now passed. 24 years. I mean, we don't like waiting 24 hours. I mean, two days to get something from Amazon sometimes just seems too long. Two days? Really? It's going to take two days to get to my house? Yeah. 24 years. Along about year 10, Abraham and Sarah, they're, you know, they're, they're expecting a child. They're expecting to have offspring. They understand enough about what God's doing that, that Abraham's going to be a dad. And they come up with this plan. Really, Sarah, at least the way the text lays it out, hey, you, you know, you're supposed to be a dad, and, and I have not been able to bear a child for you, so remember this girl I picked up in Egypt? Why don't you, why don't you get with her? Why don't you spend some time with her? Why don't you see if she can have a child for you? And so Abraham takes her. Has, ha, gets her pregnant. And rather than wait on God and see what he's going to do, Abraham listens to Sarah, thinks it's a good idea to help God out maybe. But from the moment she gets pregnant, trouble ensues. Peace in that house is at its end. So Sarah gets upset because she thinks that Hagar is dealing with her harshly, like with contempt. And she says, hey, hey, Abram, Abraham, listen, this girl is dealing with me with contempt. And he's like, hey, um, she's your servant. Take care of it. So Sarah deals with her harshly, so harshly that Hagar runs away. And then the angel of the Lord finds her and says, no, you need to go back. And she's so appreciative of that because she recognizes God at work and she's, she's seen and she's recognized, she's understood she goes back. She has this, this child, a son. She's told she's going to have a boy. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man kind of thing. And he's gonna, which, I mean, there's plenty of, plenty of ways we could take that. But, but then it would be 13 more years. So, so far as we know, it would be 13 more years before Abraham would hear from God again. 
I think he learned his lesson. Maybe we shouldn't try to help God out. And when God shows up and reappears, appears again to Abraham, he doesn't just show up and say, hey, Abraham, I'm, I'm the God who called you out of Ur, of Chaldees. He comes to him with a name that, that to this point hasn't been used in Scripture. I am God Almighty. El Shaddai. I'm the God who can work. I'm the God who's sufficient. I'm the God who's able to do what he says he's going to do. I don't need your help. I'm going to do this. But I do have something for you to do too. So God has bound himself in covenant with Abraham that he will fulfill all that he's promised to accomplish for Abraham and through Abraham and takes the curse upon himself if he doesn't. But God Almighty doesn't need the help of mankind to fulfill his covenant promises, but does require faithful obedience of his covenant partner. He doesn't require help from his covenant partner, but he requires faithful obedience of his covenant partner. 24 years after the initial call, 99 years old, and Abraham is getting a new name and about to have a new baby. Now, I'm 50, and that seems the name I could deal with, but the baby seems terrifying. Like, come on, I do not want to do this now. Right? Sleepless nights, dirty diapers, Paul says he's as good as dead, but here, here we go. God is going to do this work. He, he, can, he can do what Abraham can't imagine him doing. He can do what Abraham can't do himself, right? This is El Shaddai. He's the one who is, who is able to ensure that a 99-year-old man can impregnate a woman and a, and a, or a 90-year-old woman can bear a child. He's the one able to do that. He can do far more than we can think or imagine, as Paul writes in the book of Ephesians. He is God Almighty. He reaffirms the fulfillment of his covenant promises. He says to Abram, Abram, Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. He reaffirms the fulfillment of his covenant promises. It's the, it's the same covenant. It's not... It's not Two covenants, and it's not, a, it's not that God made a covenant and then now comes and makes another covenant. This is one covenant. This is a reaffirmation, not the establishment of something new, not the, not the making of a new covenant. This is a reaffirmation of the covenant that was presented to Abram, uh, Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. And the reason, I, I, one of the things I would point to is I, I, I showed you guys as we worked through this originally as we were working through the covenants and, and showed you that Genesis 6 is a reaffirmation of the covenant that's in Genesis 1 through 3, the language that's there. There, there is, a, there is a, a, a language, a, a word used at the initiation, the f- primary initiation of a covenant. That's karat barit. It's to cut a covenant. It's to, to make a new covenant. But every time a covenant is reestablished or reaffirmed or actually uh, not just initiated, but actually fulfilled, we, we find language like Hakim Barit, which is establish or uphold the covenant. So Barit is covenant, and Hakim is establish or uphold. And, and here we, we read that, the, that God says, hey, do this so that I can make my covenant with you. 
Well, it sounds like it's a new covenant, but the word is Natan. And, and, and what he's saying is, I want to I do this now. It's time for fulfillment. It's time for me to act. It's time for me to do the work that I promised by covenant to do. I'm going to fulfill the covenant. I'm going to hand it down. It's time for you to live up to your side, to live in your responsibility. I'm going to establish or I'm going to uphold the promises that I've made to you. This is the same covenant. It's the same promises. As you read through 17, 1 through 8, you find there's promises of a relationship. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my, my person and my people. So a promise of blessing, a promise of offspring, and a promise of land. The same covenant with same promises with greater clarity. It's exactly what we saw happening from chapter 12 through chapter 15 as God first calls Abram out of Ur of Chaldees. He calls him out and he says, this is what I'm going to do. These are my promises to you. And then he says those promises again in chapter 13 and then chapter uh, 15. And he, he says those promises again, but now he adds a little bit of clarity to them. And the same exact thing happens from chapter 15 to chapter 17. It's the same exact promises. It's the same exact covenant, but now with greater clarity. In verses 4 and 5, we see that there's going to be a multitude of nations. First, he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. It's thought, now we can't prove this, but it's thought that the reason that the language is now multitude of nations is because he's also promised that Ishmael is going to be made into a great nation. So now he's not just going to be a great nation, he's going to be a multitude of nations. He's going to be the father of a multitude of nations. You know, as I mentioned last week, you know, we, we just came back from Senegal and working in Islam, and, and it happens every time we're there, we end up having conversations about their lineage, and you know where they tra trace their lineage back to? Abraham. Through Ishmael. His offspring are great. They're all over the place. Now, whether that's a direct physical line today, I don't know. But it's certainly where Islam connects itself to and, and traces it back, back to. But then there's Isaac. And so it's thought that, that you know, there was no reason to tell him ahead of time that, hey, you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations because he's, he's promising an offspring, a singular child. And now, hey, God knew it was coming. God was part of it, right? Like Abram, Abram and Hagar, they had to... They had to be together, but God had to give the life, and so he knew it was coming. It was going to occur. It wasn't an accident. There's going to be a multitude of nations. In verse 6, we see that kings will come from Abraham. That, that Literally, it's not just that, hey, you're going to be the leader of a nation, but kings are going to be born from you. Verses 7 and 13. And then a couple of times, actually, throughout the rest of the text, you see that this is going to be an everlasting covenant, and the land is going to be an everlasting covenant possession. There's a lot of people that struggle with that because they hear everlasting and immediately they think, oh, well, that means the nation should always own this land or that the, or that the covenant should still stand. And so, so hey, we've got to fight for Israel to own the land and we've got to, we, we've got to baptize babies because that's the, the direct connection to the old covenant. Or some people would suggest that we still need to be circumcising by law, by rule, because of this everlasting covenant and this everlasting possession. But I would point you back to the first, point you back to the covenant with Noah. When God is reaffirming his creation covenant with Noah, he says, this is going to be an everlasting covenant. And then he qualifies that statement immediately after saying it's going to be an everlasting covenant. As long as the earth endures. Summer, 
winter, seed time, and harvest. As long as the earth endures, I am going to preserve life upon it. This is an everlasting, not eternal, but as long as time continues, I'm going to do this. That's the qualification. And the same thing happens here, a slightly different way. This everlasting covenant, I'm going to be your God. As long as I'm your God, and as long as I'm the God of your people, as long as this covenant lasts, it will stand that circumcision is to be followed, to be carried out on every child eight days old, every male child eight days old. As long as I'm your God, and as long as this covenant is in place, this land will belong to your people. Until the fulfillment comes, God is saying. Until I've completed and finally fulfilled in completion all the work that I intend to do, this will belong to you. I'll save for later, but i just go ahead and highlight now. The reason we don't still circumcise eight-day-old boys as a part of this covenant, and, and the reason that I don't think Israel still has a stake to the claim of the land is because God fulfilled his covenant in Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews teaches. We're going to talk about that more as the weeks unfold, and I'll actually deal with it a little bit today. But God has fulfilled his covenant, and it's no longer, that covenant no longer stands. It's been displaced by a new covenant. Verses 15 through 21, another clarification, another, another addition, if you will, even though it's the same promises, same covenant, but greater clarity, uh, uh, another clarification, not, any of, not, not just any one of Abraham's sons, but specifically Isaac. So Ishmael is not the son of promise. No, I'm not going to use Ishmael. That's what you did on your own. That's what you did that's trying to help me. That's what you did trying to take things in and, and d- deal with matters in your own hand. I have a plan. I've always had a plan. And I've always intended that you and Sarah would have a child together. And his name is going to be Isaac. Not all of your sons are the sons of promise. But specifically, Isaac. God was going to do a work in which no one else could take credit for that work. He was going to enable an old man who's as good as dead to to impregnate a woman and, and enable a woman who had never given birth to a child nor was still menstruating or going through that monthly cycle. He was going to enable her to have a child. God is going to do it. He is El Shaddai. He reaffirms fulfillment of his covenant promises. He reaffirms that he is going to do what he's promised to do. And all that's left for Abraham to do is continue to trust and walk by faith. But walking by faith is not as simple as me saying, I believe, or you saying, I believe, or him saying, well, I believe. God requires faithful obedience. He demands a faith that leads action from his covenant partner. God doesn't need the help of mankind to fulfill his promises. He can do that. He doesn't require, but, but he does require faithful obedience as a person walks in covenant relationship with him. A person in covenant relationship with him doesn't just get to go and act and do whatever they want to do and pretend that God doesn't care. 
This isn't a a condition that enables, enables God to do his part. But it's one that God requires so that his covenant partner gets to enjoy the blessings in their fullest sense. It's the conditions in which he's going to do what the covenant partner couldn't do for themselves. So in terms of, let's, I would illustrate this in, in some ways in our salvation experience. It's by faith that we're saved. By grace through faith that we're saved. It's not of yourself, so no one can boast. We can't do anything to earn it. But immediately upon expressing faith, we're called to good works, right? That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You've been saved unto good works. You didn't work your way in, but by faith, you're going to do the good works that God set aside beforehand for you to do. And this is the exact same thing. So here's Abraham coming into this covenant relationship. All he's got in his hands is faith and saying, I've got to trust you. But that faith is going to work itself out in his activity, in the way he lives. It's required, been required of every covenant partner to this point. Uh, it's Gentry and Wellam. Uh, uh, Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam wrote a book, Kingdom Through Covenant. I would commend it to you. It's a massive, it's a, like 2,000 pages or something like that. If you, if you have the desire, I've got a copy, I would let you borrow it. Um, but, but they write this in, inside of that. They, God, as the covenant maker and keeper, keeper, will always keep his promises despite human disobedience because that is the kind of glorious God he is. And yet, God will always demand perfect obedience from a faithful human covenant partner. He has done this in every covenant relationship to this point. Adam and Eve. There was a faith expected of them. The word wasn't used with them. It wasn't like, oh, you're telling us we're supposed to trust. But he told them, eat this tree and you will die. And what did the serpent do? Began to insinuate that that wasn't true. Did God really say? So they're confronted. Eve is confronted. Am I going to trust God's word? Am I going to trust the serpent? You're not going to die. You'll become like God, knowing good and evil. This was a faith issue, a faith and obedience issue. You're either going to trust God and live accordingly, or you're not going to trust God and live accordingly. It's true of Noah. How does he build an ark if he doesn't trust that God's going to flood the earth? Why would he build an ark if he doesn't trust God's going to flood the earth? Faith and obedience were absolutely necessary were absolute requirement, condition of walking with God as a covenant partner. And it's true of Abraham. He says, I'm God Almighty. I can do whatever I plan to do, but walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. It's a requirement, a condition of this covenant. We see that further broken out in Genesis chapter 18, just one chapter later. For it, when when uh, God says in verse 19, For I have chosen him, this is Abraham, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now it's interesting that if you think about what he says uh, later in the prophets, what, is, what does God require of man? To walk humbly? do mercy, or walk humbly, love mercy, do justice. I'm, I'm butchering that, but I think you're, if you're familiar, you know what I'm talking about. 
Look, there's an expectation, there's a condition, there's a responsibility not only to do it, but to, to teach his children to do it. Genesis 26, in dealing with Isaac, verse 3, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and, and, and will bless you. This is God speaking to Isaac, the offspring. Sojourn in this land, I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to, your, to, to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and give, give your offspring all these lands. Same covenant being reaffirmed, same promises. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice. Now, in doctrinal theological circles, we start, we, we, we start, oh, man, what do we do with this? Because, you know, Abraham's covenant, that's an unconditional covenant. God's going to do it. God's going to fulfill the promises. Sounds like a condition, though. You cannot walk in covenant with God without faith and obedience. God doesn't need us to do the work for him. He doesn't need us to do the work instead of him. But he demands us to walk with him in faith, obeying the commands that he gives us. Just to finish that verse, in verse 26, verse 5, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. We see it happen at the end of this section where, where as soon as God goes up, so verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Not often do we get to see where God says, hey, the conversation is starting now. And now it's over. But we get, to, we get the front and the end of this conversation. God goes up. He's done saying to Abraham what he's going to say to Abraham. And we get to see what Abraham is going to do that very day. Circumcised. That very day. Obedience. So, so we see it. We, we see this expectation. We see this requirement. And it starts at the beginning, chapter 17, verse 1 and 2. I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Walk before me. To walk before God, it means to orient one's life to, to, to God, to his presence, to his promises, to his demands. It's to, it's to consider God in all that you do. To be blameless, he says. Walk before me and be blameless. It's the same word spoken of Noah. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's righteous in his own doing. But again, it's, a, it's a, a, a reflection of his walking uh, in relationship to God. It's a wholeness of a relationship. It's a, it's a morality expressed because of that relationship. It's an eth, eth, ethics, um, morality and ethics. I, I can't think of the word I want to use. But, but essentially, it's a person seeking to do the right thing and do the good thing because they're walking with God in mind. And then circumcision, every male of his household whether born in it or bought into it, must be circumcised. And anyone who doesn't obey, and here's the thing, at eight days old, you don't get the choice, right? It's not your intentional obedience. It's your parents' obedience for you. Anyone who isn't is cut off. They don't belong to the community. And so we see Abraham trusted God, and because Abraham trusted God, he sought to live in obedience to God. This unconditional guarantee given to a man whose faith required obedience. 
That God requires something of Abraham doesn't change the fact that God is going to fulfill his promises, even though it means that he bears the cost of his failure. So God's so serious about this covenant that he knows the inability of Abraham or Isaac or any of the followers, and we see it play out as the scripture unfolds, of anyone living up to that perfect obedience, that walking before the Lord in perfection and blamelessness. We, we see the, the constant rebellious nature finding its way out. But God is so serious about this covenant that he guarantees it apart from their perfect obedience. Tom Schreiner in his book on the covenants writes, we won't come to the end of history and discover that what God has promised to Abraham never came to pass. For God stakes his own life on the fulfillment of promises. At the same time, only those who believe and obey will experience the blessings of the covenant. Therefore, no one can presume on the blessings of the covenant, including Abraham's physical children, for they must believe and obey to receive those blessings. Fast forward to the Pharisees, who had all the morals, who had all the practice, and none of the devotion. And what did Jesus say to them? You are whitewashed tombs. You're not really Abraham's children. John the Baptist confronted them and said, hey, the axe is at the root of the tree. You're not producing good works and God's going to cut you down. In Matthew chapter 3, God in his sovereignty though, God will ensure that there will certainly be children of Abraham. He will ensure that he, as the sovereign, is going to ensure that we reach the end and he is sovereign over the means by which we reach them. He is going to ensure that he always has a people because he is God Almighty. This may, maybe it becomes most clear as we come to Genesis chapter 22 where God has promised Abraham, I'm going to do these things. How can I know you're going to do these things, God? Look at this covenant. I'm not going to demand that you guarantee it in any way. But I am going to require faithful obedience of you. And we come to Genesis chapter two, 22, and, and God brings Abraham to what probably is the most intense test of his life and faith. When God says, hey, you know that son I gave you? Kill him for me. We see faith played out in Abraham's life in real ways. The very next morning he gets up and he goes. Now dads, moms, <laughs> that's a big deal. Sacrifice your child. Could you do that? I don't know if I could do that. God would have to give me the faith to do that. Faith continues to reveal itself in Abraham. He gets to, gets to where he can see that mountain off in the distance. He says to his servants who are now making sure that the wood is carried, that the animals are tended, and he says, hey, you all stay here. Isaac and I are going to go, and we are going to return. 
Wait, you know, Abraham, you know what you're going to do. You know what God has called you to. How are you both going to return? Faith. He was convinced in faith. God's almighty. He's going to do something. 22.8, after Isaac begins to notice, hey, something's missing. I see the wood. I see the fire. Where's the animal, Dad? Like, what, what's gonna, what, what, what do we do here? The Lord's going to provide. Trust the Lord. The Lord's going to provide. And the faith. Now, it's a big deal to get up and go, to tell your servants you're coming back, to tell your son the Lord's going to provide. Well, what kind of faith does it take to begin to tie that boy up Lay him on the altar you've just constructed and pick up the knife to slaughter him. I don't know what's going through Abraham's mind at this point. I have no clue. I don't have any idea what's happening in Isaac's mind. Like what is about to happen? I don't have any idea. But the author of Hebrews tells us that this is his faith in action. God Almighty can do it. And just as it's about to happen, God stops him. God calls out, don't touch him, don't don't do anything else. And he provides a ram stuck in a thicket. And he did exactly what Abraham said he would do. He provided. Genesis 22, 15 through 18, one of the most beautiful passages in all Scripture, right right after the balance of God's unconditional but conditional covenant Being expressed to Abraham, God says, or the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. I don't need your help, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of its enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God is guaranteeing that the promise will be fulfilled. But he demands faithful obedience of those who come after him. God has bound himself in covenant with Abraham that he will fulfill fulfill all that he has promised to accomplish for Abraham and through Abraham, and takes the curse upon himself if he doesn't. But God Almighty doesn't need the help of mankind to fulfill his covenant promises, but does require faithful obedience of his covenant partner. And we, say, we know, if you know the story of the Bible, the growing tension that, that, that begins to unfold, Isaac is not a great covenant partner. Jacob is not a great covenant partner. David and Israel are not great covenant partners. But God is going to provide a beautiful, perfect, holy, and righteous covenant partner who is faithful and obedient in every way. And it's not going to be a lamb, and it's not going to be through some priestly sacrificial system. God's provision is his own dear son. The true seed of Abraham, as Galatians 3 tells us, who, because he is God, can satisfy God's own righteous demand. And who, because he is human, can fully obey for us at the faith, as the faithful human covenant partner. He does for us what we can't do for ourselves.
In Christ, we can be called righteous. In Christ, we can be called saint instead of sinner. In Christ, we, can brought, we are brought near. We are citizens of his kingdom and sons of the king because he is a faithful covenant partner. But what's left for you and me? Faith-filled obedience. He doesn't need our help. He does not need our help. He can accomplish what he said he's going to accomplish. But he demands our faith that leads to obedience. A faith, a trust so true that it actually leads our action. It leads us to reorient our whole life to walk before him, to recognize him to recognize he's behind it all, to recognize that he is God at every time and in every place, that he's the Alpha and the Omega, the God from beginning to end. We have nothing to fear because God is for us. So who could be against us? We have nothing to worry over or fret over because there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He has us. So we can walk in peace before the Lord because of faith. A faith, a trust that's so true that it leads us to live blamelessly. To seek to do those good works that God set, before, set, set aside for us to do beforehand. Or as Paul says it later in the, in, the, in the letter to the Ephesians, to walk worthy of the call of God. To not just be made holy, to not just be given peace, to not just be said we're righteous, but then to act like it because we believe Him. Because we trust him so truly. Faith-filled obedience, a faith, a, a trust so true that it leads us to obey all that Jesus has commanded. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, go. Really, I mean, whatever follows that, that statement, if it is sit down as bumps on a log, then we should be saying, sit down as bumps on a log. If it says, you know, this is a little bit controversial, but go drink the purple Kool-Aid. If he said that, go drink the purple Kool-Aid. But that's not what he said. All authority in heaven and on earth, and by this authority, therefore, go. Make disciples. Show people me. Teach them to follow me. Teach them to learn from me. Teach them to come after me. Teach them to obey all that I've baptized them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, so that they too are united with us and walk with us, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. It's striking that when Jesus says to make disciples, he doesn't say, obey Moses. Obey the government. Do what you think is right. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. In Him, and only in Him, are we ever able To be a faithful covenant partner. 
But until we reach glory and our nature has been replaced by, and we have been glorified, and our sin nature has been put off, and we get to practice everywhere we go, in everything we do, preaching the word that leads people to see Jesus, living lives of worship that lead others to worship Jesus. As, Paul, or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, something to the effect of live such noble lives among the pagans that even as they accuse you of being evil, they will turn and worship God on the day of visitation. So you go live those noble, good, godly lives. Be cast out, be cut off, be ignored and ridiculed by the culture so that your life of worship leads others to worship. Standing one, as one, as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that, that, that we're to, to, to approach one another humbly, pursue love together, and, and prioritize the, the maintaining, not making, but maintaining the spirit of the unity of the bond of peace. Standing together as one people. Instead of segregating and dividing and arguing and bickering and cutting people off because they don't vote the way we do or they drink something that we're not approving of or we sit down and eat with people that we don't like. We stand together united in the one Lord, one faith, one baptism. <laughs> Preaching the word one another in season and out of season with complete patience because we every one of us have a tendency towards finding people that tickle our ears and make us feel good about what we think and we need the word to, to rebuke us to reprove us and to exhort us to the one true faith the one true faithful covenant partner our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what's left for us? A faith-filled obedience. Trust in God and acting like you trust Him. Let's pray.